MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program for politics. History. The security national. Crime organized. Dinero sucio. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Ronlin Domang is here. Ronlin is a novelist. She's written four books. The first is called The Mercy of Thin Air. Absolutely beautiful book. Um, that came out in 2005. And then she wrote The Keeper of Tales trilogy, which are these fantasy books, um, The Mapmaker's War, The Chronicles of Secret Riven, and The Plague Diaries. So those were released in 2014, 2015, and 2018, respectively. And yes, she really did write a book called Plague Diaries before COVID-19. So um, I wanted to have her on because I wanted her take on things. And her take on things, first of all, she's from Louisiana. She's born and raised and still lives in Louisiana. And I wanted to hear from her what that's like, what Louisiana is like, what the political scene there is like, what the people are like, how they've changed during the time of Trump. So I was curious about that. And I, I'm curious about, you know, sort of the whole creative process and the role in society now of the creative writer, you know, of the artist. And, you know, she says in the interview about writers that they're the seers. You know, there's a part where she's talking about AI. And this is a point I've made. Too. It's like the science fiction writers all told us what's going to happen with AI. So why are we not listening to them? because it's in a novel, you know, it's still wisdom. You know, one of the reasons that novels exist is to, is as vehicles, I think, for some sort of wisdom. Uh, I'm talking more about hers than mine right now. And, you know, hers is certainly that way. I feel like Ronlin can tap into this sort of ancient wisdom in a way that few other writers can. And I wanted to hear from her about what she thinks about things. She's also like recently, she's starting up a Substack, which is called Crone Energy, C-R-O-N-E. Um, she's only written one post so far, and I don't know when, and she probably doesn't know when she's going to actually start in earnest, but it's going to be great uh, when she does. I'm really looking forward to that. So you should go over and subscribe to that because whenever she starts, it's going to be uh, magnificent. Um, she also has on her website, there's, if you're a writer, there's a lot of resources for writers there that I think are super useful, especially to writers kind of starting out. So um, keep that in mind as well. This is a great conversation and it was great to hear from her and hear her thoughts about kind of the state of things, looking at it from that lens. So we talk about Louisiana, obviously we start off with that. We talk a lot about ancestral trauma because she writes about these sort of cycles of things, um, you know, about slavery and the aftermath of slavery and how that that sort of original sin of the United States keeps uh, reverberating through the ages, right? We talk about AI, we talk about types of societies and, you know, the prevailing society that we live in is, is patriarchal and capitalistic and, you know, based on exploitation and, you know, screwing over your fellow man in many ways. So, um, you know, she asked the question, why are we living this way? Why is this normal? 
you know, why don't we realize that it's not and that we're destroying the planet and that, you know, we can choose to live in different ways. Um, you know, easier said than done, of course, but, you know, sometimes just realizing it is important. So, uh, and then at the end, we talk about the creative process. She has a really interesting creative process and I wanted to ask her about that. So uh, again, you know, this is a little bit of a departure from what we usually talk about on the podcast, but um, I like to do this every once in a while. And I think it's a really valuable conversation. And so uh, I'm not going to prattle on. The, lots of bad stuff happened this week. I don't even want to get into it. The, this interview was recorded on September 3rd. You know, I don't think that much has changed in the last three weeks, but, you know, uh, it was happening, I think, when the, the Burning Man Festival was uh, underwater, right? So, uh, again, her books are uh, The Mercy of Thin Air, The Map Maker's War, The Chronicles of Secret Riven, and The Plague Diaries, and I highly recommend them. So, um, I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes, as I usually do. And now I'm going to stop talking. We'll be right back with Ronlin. Domang. When the evening becomes the night, this is when alpha men come out to play, to take what they want. Women, power, suede vests. Introducing a new fragrance for alpha men, Gorka, <laughs> by Orban. Take what you want. Handguns, security clearances, well, maybe not that. Gorka by Orban. Look for it near the fish oil supplements. And now, back to the show. <laughs> Ronlin Domang, welcome to Prevail. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Did I get your name right? I got it right? You did. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Even though you're not from south of the Atchafalaya Basin, you did a very good job. No, I'm from north of that basin, which you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to start with that. Now, you and I know each other from from a site called the Nervous Breakdown, which um, came into being. I don't know. When was that? Oh, eight, something like that. I, I can't even remember now. No, it was earlier, maybe even. I think my kids were oh uh, five, oh six. And um, it was basically a community of of um, novelists or aspiring novelists. And, and we would write um, periodically you know, pieces of what we like to call creative nonfiction. And then people would go in and comment on them. And in the comment boards uh, sprung up this kind of literary community, uh, which was kind of a nice thing. Because at the time, I think Facebook was still pretty new. Twitter, I remember when Twitter came out uh, that we were told, you know, go get a Twitter account, you know, for the nervous breakdown and um, stuff like that. But there wasn't like the the kind of um, many, many vehicles for such things than as there are today. So um, just so for people listening to understand, that's how that's how we know each other. Um, and we've known each other through correspondence for all this time. But this is the first time we've actually spoken, which is exciting for me. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it's in some of our times that we've been in communication for more than a decade, but have never talked to each other. I know. But I. Although it is very writerly to be like that, yes, I suppose. It yeah, is. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so, um, we, which is what we are. So, um, now for people who don't know, you're the author of, uh, you have four novels and they're all great. And they're all like, you know, they're serious things. Like they're, you know, sometimes I read books by people I know a little bit and I read it. I'm like, oh God, this thing, this is just, it reads like, you know, somebody's bad diary from 1990. I, I read, now when I read, um, 
yeah, the Map Makers War, which is the first book of the trilogy. I'm reading this and I'm like, holy shit, man. This is like really good. This is like serious Thank stuff. Thank you. Um, not that I, I I knew you were capable of serious stuff, but I, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know, next level. Like, I can't do this, what she's oh, doing. Oh, gosh. Here. Oh, my. And, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, it's true. It, it, because you're writing, it, it's a trilogy. It's a fantasy story. You have to do the whole world building and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's if hard. You say so. <laughs> you do. And you have to write in a certain style that is um, not quite like biblical, but that kind of like, you have to have that sort of gravitas to pull it off, which um, I'm too jokey. I can't get away with it. But it, it, I, I was very impressed with, you know, with the whole thing. So we're going to talk about the books later. Yeah, because... the enormous amount of credit you're giving me, which is not due. But anyway, we'll get into that. <laughs> it is, but that that's that's neither here nor there. But I want to talk about, I wanted to have you on because um, I like the books. I want to talk about, I'm interested in the idea of creativity now um, in, in 2023 in the in the world where we live, in the country where we live, in the world where we live, the role of the writer, the role of the novelist, the fiction writer, um, all, all kinds of stuff like that. But before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about politics and local politics. Now, you're you're from Louisiana. You grew up in Louisiana. You went to school in Louisiana. You still live in Louisiana. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no one listening can watch you nodding sadly. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 one of the great perplexing things of my life because I, I was born here, I was raised here, I always thought I would leave, and I never did, and I can't even explain why. Um, other than for I think what is it? Louisiana is one of the states where most most of the people who are born here stay here and live within only a few miles of their parents, kind of a thing. You know, if I dig pretty deeply, I mean, and, and you're coming, you're asking me this at a time where I'm reflecting a lot about ancestral lineage mm. and ancestral trauma. And part of my lineage is Acadian. So the French colonized up in Nova Scotia and they hung out there for a while. And then when the British came in, they exiled the Acadian people. So I have both the experience ancestrally of being a colonizer and someone being displaced. And so my ancestors ended up here in deep South Louisiana. And so there's this strange sense of clinging to roots, like they've put down roots and then no one leaves. And I think this is something I'm, I'm still interrogating. It's strange. I mean, we, we're just the deep South Louisiana people, we just don't leave. And when you do, it's like an escape. It's like, how did you do it? But how how many generations has it been then? Oh, geez. On which which, which line of, of my family? I mean, I've done my genealogy. I mean, I've had people in Louisiana from the time Louisiana wasn't even a state yet. I mean, we're talking like 1700. Yeah. Like we're going way, way back. And this would have been the Swiss guy who showed up in Mobile and then came to New Orleans. And it's a long time. I, I'm fascinated by all this stuff. I'm fascinated by the cultures. I mean, and, you know, the United States is so young relative to or at least colonized the United States. It's so young compared to places in Europe that are, you know, you have families that have been there for thousands of years. Um, no, no one who of European descent has obviously been here for that that long. But uh, having said that, that's still a really long time compared to, you know, my 
my people have not been in the United States that long. So I, I don't have, I don't think the same level of, of, uh, of roots that, that you do. And I think, you know, maybe that's, that's a thing. And that, that uh, informs the way that people in the deep South in general regard their place in things. So, um, and I'm, I, I find all of that fascinating, the culture, the, the, the sources of why the deep South tends to be Republican um, and how, often or conservative i should say because in 1860 it was not republican but the and how often goes against the the political party that would help it the most which is kind of ironic so um i i this is what i want to get at is uh and this might be an impossible question for you to answer i want to know what louisiana is like um now, I mean, New Orleans is there and New Orleans is a hodgepodge because it's Spanish and it's French and it's different cultures. But I don't think New Orleans is really Louisiana, Louisiana. So how is it different than like Alabama or Mississippi or other places in the South? OK, well, I, I grew up in what's called like the Acadiana area. So that's in between New Orleans to, to the uh, east and then like Lake Charles to the west. And I would say there is no one culture for Louisiana, even if you take Louisiana, New Orleans out of it, because everything's different. So Cajun culture is very different from the culture of people who live north around Treeport or Monroe. Like much of the South, the, the church and however you want to look at it, religion mm -hmm. is very deep in everyone's families and the way they're raised and the way they see things. So I grew up in like in Acadiana where the, that's the Cajun culture. So it's not New Orleans. The Cajuns are not in New Orleans. There might be some, but where I'm from, they're mostly French and Catholic and deeply Catholic. So I'm growing up in an environment that's very rooted in the church, all of the traditions related to that, you know, the thinking processes that go along with it about, you know, your nuclear family and you, you know, get married, you have kids and all of that. And I don't know what happened genetically or whatever, but going like even as a very small child, I was very clear like mm, this doesn't this doesn't make sense to me. The church doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the environment I'm growing up in as I get older and start questioning more and, and realizing the questions I had, I couldn't ask the adults in my life because I'd be shut down by it. Yeah. Because how dare you question this? How dare you question issues of race or cult or class or God forbid the church or whatever that was? So books were my way to get answers when no one would tell me anything. So I was the kind of kid who would go upstairs to the adult section in the library and I go in places I wasn't supposed to be, supposedly, and I would read about all the things that no one would tell me. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a, uh, I'm the oldest of three. Okay. Okay. Were your siblings also curious like you or, you, or were you like the, the, uh, Outlier. I'm pretty sure I was the oddball out on that one. Okay. I was, yeah. I mean, but my, both of my siblings are very intelligent, compassionate, wonderful people. The degree to which they were scrolling around upstairs, the library. I don't think that happened. I okay. think that was me. Okay. Um, so now you were saying before we turn the, the recorder on, uh, you were like <laughs> sort of slamming Louisiana um, relative to other States. So, what what's your beef with it specifically i guess i think my beef with my state is we're so stuck in the same patterns we've been in for centuries generations 
I mean, the legacy of enslavement is part of our everyday life. I mean, as I've as I've done the research on my own family, my genealogy, and just kind of growing up here and trying to interrogate, you know, what does it mean to be a white person and certainly a white person in the South and realizing really how much privilege I've had, what responsibility do I have to kind of break the patterns that have been put into place? I mean, I'm I'm the descendant of no fewer than 60, 60 people who enslaved other human beings. That's a huge thing to realize. Yeah. And one of the gifts that my great-great-grandmother Mary left was an autobiography she wrote before she died. So she died oh, in wow. 1940. It's only 15 pages. It's very sparse. It's fascinating in the way it kind of talks about what her life was like because she was born in 1863. So she was born during during the Civil War. And it's this strange mix of, which is so, it's so Louisiana in its own way. She uses words we are not supposed to use anymore. Uh, the family that my family enslaved stayed with them after emancipation. And so one of her playmates was the child who was born enslaved and how wow. much she loved playing with him. And then as I'm reading along and, uh, you know, kind of learning about it, just that the the, the interrelationship of black people and white people to just sort of survive, but with that, the weight of enslavement on top of it. And you know, this is probably something I'll continue to be puzzling out until I die because it's just so complicated. And having that, primary document from grandmother mary to look at and just sort of like did you did you even notice what you're saying about the people you claim to love i it's just very confusing so and then here in the south you know especially in the, where i'm from the interaction of people is incredibly friendly and i think we do understand our interdependence to a great degree, but that divide is often unspoken. And when it's brought up, particularly among white people, it's it's very, it's threatening and upsetting. I mean, I've tried to have conversations with people in my own family and, you know, the wall immediately goes up and it's like, yeah, it's, it's hard to admit that what our people, our family, our varying family did was wrong, but it's up to us to to stop repeating this and realize there's some rectification that needs to happen. Yeah, and it's, it's just codified. I mean, the, 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 I mean, look at the, look at the way that every state, but especially Louisiana, look at how it's gerrymandered. It is designed to keep people from voting. It's yes. designed to keep certain people in power. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. And until the actual numbers of human beings here who can vote, changes dramatically unless the everything gets redistricted in, into a state of fairness this is just how it's going to continue to be and it's freaking absurd quite you know we know that yeah yeah it's pathetic it, it's the same it's it mississippi is the same way mississippi is like has the highest percentage of of african americans of any state in the country and yet is reliably republican every you know always so you know clearly there's stuff there's shenanigans going on there that are that are not good um, you brought up the thing about slavery and the having that in the background, I think is, you know, it is, you know, how do you reconcile something like that is, is interesting, you know, it's interesting, for, certainly, I mean, from any number of standpoints, from a literary standpoint, it's interesting. 
Um, I wonder about people like Thomas Jefferson, who clearly knew that it was wrong and sort of wrote highfalutinly about how it was wrong, but continued to do it anyway um, in ways that were not great, uh, famously awful. Yeah. Which was his privilege, which, you know, that there, he was a man with money. He can he can say one thing and do another. That's no big deal. We see that all the time, don't we? <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. I, I just, you know, the 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 inertia of it, of it, everything's just rolling along and to push against that. I just wonder, you know, did it just seem impossible to try to prevent something? I, I don't know. It's it really when I stop and think about the fact that there were slaves in this country not that long ago, uh, it really just I, I can't wrap my mind around it. I just I can't do it. You know, it's hard to fully wrap my mind around it really is. Do you know if in your family history, because I don't know, I don't know about your background. So did, did, no, did my, you know if you have enslavers in your background? I don't think so, because I mean, the only person that there was one guy that was maybe Welsh, but from Pennsylvania. So I think probably no. Um, and everybody else is immigrants from, you know, when, when the immigrants all came, you know, Polish and Slovak and and mostly so, Italian. So you're 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 after yeah 1865. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Whereas for me, it starts with the first people who showed up here, like my German ancestors. It's 1720. They don't have a a penny to their name. They're here for a couple of years, and boom, somehow they get enough money to get a couple of people to enslave and. And, and and let me just add this, that ancestor is the one who brought the property that became Whitney Plantation, which is the plantation that people can visit in Louisiana now that focuses on the legacy of enslavement. Oh, wow. So, okay. yeah. So he, he, that ancestor did not build the plantation itself, but the property was his and it was a descendant of his who built it. So when I... I, I remember doing my genealogy work and finding out who that progenitor was for me. And then when I learned who he was connected to, like I literally did, I'm sitting at the computer crying, going, oh my God, like that's, this is my legacy. This is what is in my DNA. And he's one of six zero that I know of. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, Do that's you a lot. I was going to ask this later, but I'm going to ask it now since we're on the topic of this this ancestral lineage stuff. Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that because I, you know, and you write about this a lot in the books too, in the trilogy, this idea of things being passed down and sort of reliving, people reliving or going through the same experiences that their ancestors went through and stuff like that. And part of me thinks that there's something to it, and part of me looks at my ancestors and is like, I'm not like any of these people. I don't, I don't know, you know, even temperamentally. But do you think that there's something to that? Because I've had experiences where I think that maybe, yeah. So what's your, what, where, where, are you, where are you sitting with that right now? Now, the idea of, you know, that we're sort of rehashing or reliving or living through things that, you know, our ancestors lived through 150 years ago or whatever. I think we are definitely carriers of patterns and carriers of uh, unresolved pain mm. and challenges. Uh, my trilogy definitely p touches on that, but so does my first book, The Mercy of Thin Air. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, reading when I had to reread that book for something not too long ago, I was like, 
oh, I'm touching on the same stuff. It's the same like ancestral trauma that comes through and expressed through the dinner, different generations. And I, I think we do. I think uh, if you read anything by uh, Mark Wallen, who writes about uh, an ancestral lineages and how that links into people's trauma and how that expresses in their own lives and uh, Rachel Yehuda's work on epigenetics, where she studied not only um, the survivors of the Holocaust, but Vietnam veterans and how that translates. You know, it's a little difficult for, I think, people to grasp on a non-ordinary level that genetically we can carry these memories or these patterns in our DNA and it gets expressed somehow in our own lives. I mean, I don't know why it's that so strange because if I have blue eyes because this ancestor had blue eyes or I have dark hair because this ancestor had dark hair, why is it so impossible to believe that we're not carrying things that are unseen? Right, right. Things that still need to be expressed and worked out. And I think as I've hit my 50s and where I am with my own work and the struggle I've had with it, there are moments I'm thinking whatever the struggle is, isn't necessarily mine. Who does this belong to? What mm. is this an echo of? And I, I mentioned my great-grandmother Mary earlier. So she was born in 1863. She was she had 10 kids. She had a farm. She lived a very rural life. But the generation right before her, her mom, they had money. She, Mary was very well-educated. Clearly, when you read her autobiography... She could write like she had something, but it could not be expressed given the time and place where she lived, not the circumstances that she was in. And my grandmother, so that would have been Mary and then her son and then my grandmother. My grandmother was very creative and she would tell me when I was a kid, oh, I love to do plays, like write plays and perform plays and all this kind of stuff. And my grandmother was an incredibly creative person, very beautiful seamstress. And as I got into my 30s and was looking back at her, and this is when she gave me a copy of Mary's autobiography, it landed was, oh, I get to do this. I'm the one. And that's also an incredible revelation, but a burden yeah. <laughs> at the same time, because it's like, oh, well, am I, am I fulfilling my own potential as my own self as a human being? And what am I doing to honor the grandmothers who couldn't do what I got to do? So I think clearly in this conversation, I don't just think about my own little world. I'm kind of thinking about what is happening around me and what has come before me and how does that impact me and what I do in my life to try to make things better. Yeah. Move things home. along. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how else to put it, you know? especially since I'm just one person, there's only so much I can do. This makes, this makes a lot of sense to having read recently finished the plague diaries. Cause there's a lot of what you're talking Please. about going on in there with the, you know, the found manuscripts and the, you know, the past and the, all, all this stuff. So, um, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of times in my life. I think memories, do you think memories too can be passed down in some way? Like I was in, I was in Prague in 98 and it was the first time really that I had gone anywhere outside the United States. And I went there and I was going to go visit the AP bureau there because the woman there had set me up with a place to stay, to rent uh, while we stayed there. And uh, the guy who opened the door, um, first of all, he's pronounced my name correctly, which is Oliar. He was like, Oliar. And I was like, ah, 
And he said, you know, uh, you know, you're the, the your name means oil man. It's a Slovak name. And I didn't know that. I thought that my name was Polish. And uh, he's like, no, 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 it's not Polish. It's Slovak. And this and that. And it was really weird because I felt very at home there. Like even the language, I felt like it wasn't really all that off to me, even though I'd never learned it or studied it or people were asking people kept asking me for directions on the street you know like that kind of thing and i'm like i i just oh, got here God. two days ago okay yeah <laughs> i can totally relate to this because when when my first novel came out my italian publisher had me go for the for the launch of the book in italy and my ancestry is actually sicilian oh, part of okay it. okay okay so far much you know much farther south but when i was in milan I'm walking around and I'm seeing all of these little women who look like my family and it felt very comfortable. And I was only there six days, but I have never felt more at home in any other place than Milan. It was so strange. And I, we did, we had people, um, my husband was with me. I, I just thought we were blending in and didn't look like <laughs> Americans, but but you had the same experience, which people stopped us for asking for directions. We're like, oh, Americano. And, you know, we didn't speak yeah. any Italian, but it was, it was the same thing. The language, it's like, if I could stay here a month, yeah. I'd be fine. Yeah, I felt, I definitely felt that way. And I felt like I had seen it before too. Like I felt yes. like everything looked like weirdly familiar, like it was some dream that I had revisited or, um, oh, and then yeah. I tried to so do a little more. That? Yeah, yeah. I got to go, I'm going to go back at some point to the little village where the uh, the first Oliar who came to the United States was born uh, way out in Eastern Slovakia in a place that now today has like 800 people in it. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Lots of Oliars there. You know, it'll be cool. Got to make that trip. Yeah. Yeah. Before oh, I die, I'll, uh, I'll go there. I'll go yep. back to, uh, I can't, he came like in 18, whatever, 70, something like that, or 80, I forget the exact year to New York city from, Eastern Slovakia, which even now is, and, you know, go, comes from there into a place where they have like street lights and stuff. It must've been like, I'm in like science fiction, you know? I mean, I don't think there's ever been anything like that ever before in time. Just people blown away by the, the technological sort of like, you know, the level of technology, pretty astonishing. Um, so, all right, getting back to Louisiana for a second, is there any hope of Louisiana turning blue, uh, it, you know, without, I'm. It, even the gerrymandering <laughs> stuff, but gerrymandering doesn't matter when you're voting for the president, right? Because it's just uh, a popular vote going into the electoral vote. So yeah, yeah. If we could only, yeah, if we could, uh, not in my lifetime. I, I think it's it, yeah. the 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 cling to tradition, if we want to call it that, is is so deep. And I think if we want to talk about trauma the trauma runs so deep in the people here that uh, I don't see it happening because it's so much easier to cling to the familiar, right? Yeah. I mean, to, to sit there and interrogate your worldview, which I was doing at seven, <laughs> you know, to interrogate your worldview and what everybody's telling you is so disruptive and scary. Yeah. And it's, as I've gotten older and thought about, well, what do I believe and why do I believe this? And every time I would have a crack in my worldview, there's that rupture of, of fear of, you know, well, who am I now? But it's also that horrible feeling of betrayal that you've been lied to, mm. that the thing you've been told and you believed turns out to be yeah. complete horseshit. It is a lie. 
And it's, you can't deny that it's a lie. And then it forces you to look at things in a completely different way. If you're not ready to do that, you're going to double down. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Aren't we? With yeah. the folks who think that a certain person whose name begins with T, you know, <laughs> is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's because the minute you admit that you have been duped, that you have been lied to, that feeling of pain, which in a lot of ways is linked to like a very deep childhood pain, like, you know, like mommy or daddy lied to me. Like, yeah, yeah. there's, there's something to that. And I'm kind of talking around it because I haven't sat here and spent a lot of time pondering, but that's what it feels like. Like, please, someone rescue me. Please, someone take care of me. And they're putting their faith in someone who will do none of it. Yeah. But talks a good game. And it's really, it's sad. And so I do have a great deal of compassion because there are people in my family who will not admit the degree of what? Uh, yeah. So yeah, just can't admit this is like a really hot mess. Yeah. No. But I have to have compassion with for these people because they are my family and there's clearly something not firing right that creates a challenge for them to see that this isn't good for our country and it's not good for our planet, frankly. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. Um, so now you're you're a, a really an empathic person, what I would consider a very empathic person. And I I Wish know I <laughs> The people that I know that are empath like that um, really felt like visceral injury when the guy whose name started with T got elected. And I felt and, and kept being almost re-traumatized throughout the, the you know, duration of his presidency. And still, because he's still around. We haven't put him in, in behind bars yet. Maybe by and the time this. Be, probably. Yeah. Maybe by the time the podcast comes out, he'll be indicted several more times. I don't know. Well, so what did you think when he got elected? How did you cope with him being president? What are your thoughts now post mugshot? Um, I went into a freeze response, quite frankly, after the election. Um, and I think part of that was because I was in denial about the degree to which my fellow Americans were willing to be such huge misogynists. Yeah. At the same time, embracing someone who is clearly not a person you would want to bring to the dinner table to bring your visit your grandma. I mean, like, let's be real practical. As things moved forward, and I did share with you, I mean, I haven't watched television news since the 2016 election because yeah. it was such a disruptive thing to my head and to keep seeing his face because that's the other... Um, this is a sidebar. I find AI... Images, very disturbing because there's something in my brain that tells me it's not real. Mm. And so when things get shared online and people are like, oh, look at this beautiful photograph. I'm like, how do you not know that that's AI? How can you not tell? Because I physically get queasy. Mm. And there's going to be a time where I won't be able to notice, but I still can and it bothers me. And it's the same feeling with this particular person that how are you not looking at the same thing I'm looking at and seeing the same thing I'm seeing? It's... It's disorienting. Like, where are you in reality with what's happening? And now where I am with it is, I think, at a point of acceptance in light of natural cycles. And where I'm going with that is, you know, I live in the woods. I had to move to the woods for my own mental health. 
But one of the things I noticed living out here, and I did when I had a garden, but it's very different when you live in the woods, and that idea of profound natural cycles. And for most of my life, I thought, well, human beings are intelligent. We can figure out how to fix our own shit, right? We can figure out how to do this and this and this. If we can put human beings on the moon, we can figure out how to fix this. True, but it seems that we have to go through this cycle of horror and pain, and it must be disruptive, and it must be disorienting, and it must be disintegrating before whatever new can come into place, because it's too late. It's just yeah. too late. There was maybe a time, I don't know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, that maybe this train could have taken a different track, but it didn't. And it's sad, and I feel really horrible for the generations under me and what's coming Yeah, because we don't know what's going to happen. And I, it's not like I'm hopeless. It's more of a, yeah, it's just going to have to get a lot worse before it gets better. And we can only hope that once things fall apart, whatever pieces are left, that the people who come in are not the people who built the same system back up again, that it is a different set of people who put us in a different place as a species in relationship with the other non-human beings, meaning animals, meaning plants, meaning trees, meaning our water, everything, yeah. that everything is in a different relationship once that shatters. Because if not, there's nothing left. The planet will survive. Our species will, but it will look very different and be very small. And maybe that, and maybe that was, in fact, you know, I'm not really big on the big, you know, God's plan. What's the big scheme of things? I'm big picture, but I'm not necessarily thinking that there's one outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that everyone whose mugshot we saw would get put in jail. But even there's the part of me that's like, what's the point of jail? What's the point of incarcerating people? It feels good in the moment, but what does that really rectify? It doesn't, it doesn't undo the harm that was done. And it's not even compassionate to the people who are clearly so broken that they would break our country. Yeah. So yeah. I I don't have an answer, but I just sit with this shit and it sucks. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that because I know, you know, a lot of people that listen to the show, probably everybody that listens to the show feels that way too on some level, you know, feels this hurt, this injury and, you know, how to cope with it and how to kind of, um, figure out how to go forward and how to make, how to make sense of it and process it at all, I think is really important. So, um, you know, I appreciate you sharing your, your feelings. I mean, I, I think all I can say on that is you know, we're not alone, even though we feel alone and we're bombarded constantly with, you know, images and news clips and snippets that they just hurt, you know, cause it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. I think that's does. the worst of it just does not, have to be this way at all there are other ways this could go and why why there's not enough will to change the direction of things i i don't know this is a good segue into talking about your book so we're going to do that but first we have to take a quick break we'll be right back with ronlin domang welcome to the five eight this is what we do here the five eight your friday night hang we take five of the week's most notable and newsworthy topics and spend eight minutes covering each one. Yeah, it, it, like everything else associated with Trump, it's a walking disaster. Prosecution is important because it's the only thing that starts to puncture their personality cults. 
I really do need people to remember. Like, tell uh, Americans history. Tell the actual story that this country actually did that. What we need to be selling out there is that we are the antidote to chaos. That we are actually um, just for responsible, effective government. There is no greater um, issue that sums up democracy versus fascism than abortion. There is nothing more authoritarian than the state telling a woman that she must carry to term Forced a, birth. A, yeah. a pregnancy that she does not want. Five segments, three minutes of evolving animation by Chunk, two revved up hosts, one comic interlude. It's not the end of the world, just a Twitter. A special guest. Basically, what we are now is bailout nation in banks. Because nowadays, elections are not about facts. And as many cocktails as we deem necessary. So I'm calling this a Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> <laughs> when they go low, bury them. They're already down in the gutter. Join me. Greg Oliar and LB Stephanie Koff. Our rants to one another end up being this show. This is what we decided to do with our friendship. Friday nights, live, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. It's the 5 8. I guess it's okay. People seem to like it. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, Great. we're back with Ronlin Domang. Um, I want to talk about the trilogy a little bit, especially I, I want to, The Plague Diaries, which is the third book of the trilogy, 
Um, and you say that they can be read in any order. And I felt like when I finished this one, I want to go back and read the first one again. It's almost like a cycle. That's what it felt like. I don't know if you did that intentionally, but it's, I just going to, I, I assume people haven't read the book and I'm going to ask questions anyway, and it doesn't matter because it'll, it'll, uh, people will get, get the gist of it, I think from, uh, from what I'm asking you. So the trilogy is about, it's about a lot of different things, but one of them you're really concerned with human societies. So in the land of the guardians, you show us what, you know, and you were talking about it before, you know, how can we change? How can we change? You show us in the book, what an ideal society kind of should look like, um, what an ideal government should look like. And then obviously there's people in, in the other world around the society that can't quite get there. So tell us about that. You know, it, it, what is the ideal society? What do you think it should constitute and what is really holding us back from getting there? <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Just easy questions on Sunday. Just easy afternoon. questions. No, pro no problem. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. So the, the map makers war, which is the first book of the trilogy is takes place a thousand years from the two books that follow it. And that story is set in a time that's similar to our dark ages. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. And the, the culture of the guardians, which, you know, there's kind of a traditional kingdom and the map maker who's the first woman map maker ever stumbles upon them in their little hideaway in the woods. And they live in peace and compassion. And these small communities where they don't have this huge hierarchy um they share everything uh you know it sounds like a hippie commune but in the way that i received what the guardians were like it didn't feel like a hippie dippy commune to me as i was working on the books and I, we might as well segue into you know i receive rather than imagine so as i was working on all of my books the first one and the trilogy I get pieces, I get images, I hear sounds. It's a very strange, dreamlike, mystical kind of experience. And so as the guardian culture was coming to me and I was seeing it and I couldn't make sense of it, literally could not make sense of the pieces I was getting. I went into the library at LSU, which is you know, great stacks of books. And I was looking for something in particular to do research for the book, because I also do research, because I don't get everything. I get some things. And I was, I literally hear a voice in my head say, go to this stack. And I go to this stack of books, I don't know, a few yards away. And I start pulling these books about Neolithic societies off of the shelves. And I go home with these books and I'm looking at the pictures and I've never seen these books before. And I've never seen books about Neolithic societies before. But what I'm looking at in these books is what the Guardian Society's communities actually look like physically. Oh, wow. So okay. it was this weird, what is happening? What is this trying to tell me? What am I supposed to do? And there's a point of surrender with all of my work where, okay, whatever is coming in is what's going to come out on the page. I just have to make it understandable for people who are reading it. And so with the Guardian community, it was, a, it was a, an amazing experience for me, and this is, of course, post-Trump, of what does it feel like to be in a place where you are taken care of in every way that you could possibly need? So in the Mapmaker's War, when, I'm not really spoiling anything, when Aoife, the Mapmaker, gets exiled from her kingdom and finds her way to one of these other guardian communities in another part of the world, when she shows up broken in spirit, they take her in, and there's a part in it where she needs medicine and she's like, well, I don't have anything to pay you. And they's like, 
well, how can we deny you medicine? And then she needed shoes. And she said, well, I don't have any money to pay you. And the person says, well, how can I deny you shoes? And it was this very basic, why do we live the way that we live? Why do we have the systems that we have set up with just seem to be based on suffering and cruelty? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, especially, I mean, I told you this, you know, I'm going through some stuff with my parents and just the complications of them getting older and they're needing medical care and there are all these bills and and all of this coming in at a time when they can't deal with it. But the harder it is to live as you get older, the more complicated it gets to be to just go through the end of your life. Why? Yeah. I don't get it. It doesn't have to be this way. And what I found true, truly amazing when people, and not many people have read The Mapmaker's War or The Chronicle of the Secret River or the, the Plague Diaries, with The Mapmaker's War, I'd get emails from readers or sometimes I'd do a book group and they'd say, um, oh yeah, The Guardians. I, I just don't find any of that believable. And I'd look at them and I'm like, what? It's like, well, how could anyone live like that? And, you know, have the society. And I'm thinking, why do we think the way we live is believable? Why do we find this in any way acceptable? That people starve, that people don't get the health care they need, they don't have the housing they need, they don't get paid a, a living wage to, to do what they need to do to raise their families or take care of themselves. It, it's absurd. And for us to continue living in this, this perception that this is how it should be or needs to be is, is a sickness. And I think we're watching this sickness play out with the mega billionaires playing games with the rest of us and our planet. And that's going back to what I said, that it's all going to have to collapse before something else comes out of it. That's where we're headed. Yeah. And so, you know, you ask about the future of writing. Well, assuming AI doesn't write every fucking book that people read in the next five years, <laughs> you know, we are the sages. Think about all the books that have given people hope or inspiration or uh, ideas of what the future could be in good ways or bad, because let's face it, our sci-fi writer sages have already told us what AI is going to do to us. Yep. This is no mystery. So why the fact that we're so stupid as a group of humans to say, yeah, let's do this AI thing. This sounds awesome. Our sages already told us what the what the end goal is, right? So why are we doing this again? At the same time, it's not either or, it's both and. It's people like us who are like, well, what about this? What about that? Kind of breathing into the space of possibility of what could happen once the end comes. We're, we're kind of giving voice to what's coming in the next few years or decades. We have to. It's a big job. Yeah. Yeah. It, there does seem to be an acceleration towards some dumb apocalypse or, you know, for want of a better word, like I like Bitcoin, for example. Bitcoin is the stupidest fucking thing that there is. Bitcoin is let's let's make this money that's on the blockchain that you need to have a computer to use. And to get the money, we're going to mine it. And the way that you mine it is you use vast amounts of electricity. So you're basically wasting more oil to make something that is not needed and shouldn't exist. It's it's just, it's so fucking dumb. 
and so clearly dumb. I you mentioned about the 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 way that this society doesn't make sense. I think about it even in terms of U.S. society versus societies elsewhere. I mean, people in Europe look at us like we're a bunch of fucking morons because of the gun deaths all the time. I mean, no, oh, but nobody please. should be living this way. This is no. places. It's 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 ridiculous. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating on a public scale. And the elections too. You know, like. George W. Bush lost the popular vote in 2000. If he wasn't president, maybe he wouldn't have uh, chose to spend a trillion dollars um, going to needless war and another trillion dollars in tax breaks and instead invested a quarter of that money into renewable energy. We wouldn't be in this predicament right now. But, right. you know, explain explain to people, you know, in a normal place why Hillary Clinton won the vote by 2.8 million, but didn't get to be president. It's fucking dumb. It makes no sense. And yet we just sort of accept it. Well, oh, well constitution. Yeah. Constitution. Yeah, yeah. got to follow the constitution. Slave, yeah, just, slave owners said that, uh, yeah. Yeah. The founding fathers. Yes. The founding fathers. Oh, so many years ago. How different are we as, I mean, it doesn't make any freaking sense. What was in the Constitution then, some of it bears out, sort of like, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. Some of that bears out. Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Is it really wrong to covet your neighbor's uh, ox, though? I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe it motivates you to do better. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe nine of the ten. I, yeah, maybe nine of the ten. But my, my, my point is, it's like, whatever that document was made sense for them at the time. Now, yeah. things are very different. It's not the same. And to try to beat that patriarchal drum to death that we cannot change, we cannot evolve, is ridiculous. And especially now, I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember where it was not okay to come out gay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's been a sea change only within, what, 30 years or so? But yeah. now here's the backlash. And what does it mean for LGBTQ human beings in a culture now that's backlashing. I mean, my my state, which I have my beef with our governor, but in a lot of ways, he's been a pretty great governor because we're not broke again, because that's what our Democratic governors do. They make sure we don't go broke. And even though he's anti-choice, he vetoed a bill that would have uh, prevented trans youth from getting gender affirming care. And then our legislature comes in and overrides his veto. So now we have all of these trans youth kids here who are imperiled because we have a bunch of backwards people who don't view their humanity and their yeah. ability to like identify as who they are and be who they are and make them live in terror and shame. Why? It doesn't have to be this way. I just I don't I don't understand the people who vote for the people who continue to do this. It it really perplexes me. I don't get it. And it makes me really sad. They just don't fucking care. They don't pay attention. Most voters don't pay attention until like a couple of days before and they vote for a person who they think is, you know, looks good on TV. It's really ridiculous. Um okay. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it, it it's mind-boggling. So, um okay, getting back to the plague diaries here. Uh, one of your characters is the wonderfully named Few Many, F-E-W-M-A-N-Y. Uh, oh. I really enjoyed Few Many. Oh. I thought he he's yeah. sort of this oligarch, right? He's this, you know, he owns these corporations and, and does a lot of construction projects for the government, for the king. 
Um, so he's like bin Laden. He's like the not Osama, the original uh, bin Laden family. You know, he's a construction agent for the king and then masses all this wealth. But he's also like he has this big library and he's very curious and he's obviously a smart guy. And I thought to myself reading this, my God, I wish our oligarchs were this at least gave a shit about books and reading and learning and stuff. Um, and I know that few men is supposed to be kind of the villain, but I still felt I still felt like I liked him more than than the oligarchs that we have in real life. Um, you know, Elon Musk doesn't give a fuck about a library. What does he care? He just wants, you know, dank memes on his wall or something. So what what inspired you to create few many? And is, is he based on someone in real life or is he like an idealized oligarch? Like what was your uh, okay, so the genesis of few many is a paragraph somewhere in my notebook when I started working on what I didn't know was going to be a trilogy. Let me just say that. So this is early days before I even knew it was a trilogy, and I was free writing about this, the idea of who owns what and who gets to control what, and the word few many showed up on the page. And then, I don't know, a few months later, suddenly few many wasn't a concept, few many was a person. And suddenly there was this shape to him and a personality and the way he was developing. And for me, experiencing Fumini, he was very much a villain. But over the years of writing him, one of the hardest things was the moments of compassion I felt for him. Like there was this very specific moment in his development where I was literally sitting in a car waiting for takeout. And I had this image of him putting, and you know this because you read the books, putting bread into his pocket. And I didn't know what that meant, but I felt this wave of compassion and knowing that whatever was connected to that was part of his origin story and what made him who he was. Yeah. And so for him, instead of what was related to that putting of the bread in his pocket, instead of that making him into someone who wanted to do good in the world to help people he turned it into being a self-preservationist and to someone who just amassed as much as he could for himself from the companies that he owned to the library that mm -hmm. he had. To the people who worked for him too, their talents and their, he was trying to always take. Yes. Yes. He was in, a, he extracted them and he, he was very deliberate in who he picked to be around him for what they could give to him and help him control. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of people who are wealthy, that they find the people who can help them extract the most wealth and power that they can. I think what makes Fumini different is that, well, first, he is, in our world, a fictional character. Um, but there are layers to him that you get to read about, whereas for the other people that we encounter in the media, we don't get their backstories. We just get to see what, what they're pushing forward. We don't know what's lurking in the background. Which is really, in a lot of cases, very wounded people doing very horrible things to the world because they are so yeah. wounded, which is certainly the case of few many. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the case of Elon Musk and the case of, as anybody who saw a social network um, of Zuckerberg, you know, constantly hitting refresh, hoping that his ex, like, picks up the phone or whatever um, and go on to do, you know. Yeah, so the world is ruled by wounded people wounding us. Oh, I like that. Let's yeah. sit with that for a moment. Say that again. That's good. The world is ruled by wounded people wounding us. Now, what do we do? Heal. We have to heal, which is part of what part of what the book is about is how the healing takes place, which I'm not going to get into. Um, 
Now, the, the other character that that you have in the book, I'm talking aside from the the, the protagonist, um, Secret Ribbon, um, is Nicholas, who's kind of this idealized prince, and then he becomes king, and he's like, you know, basically the best possible prince king that you can have. Um, and then he winds up being like, eh, I don't know if we need kings so much anymore. But I, I was thinking about kings and and monarchs, and um, certainly in fantasy literature, there's always kings and monarchs and stuff like that, and really for most of human society, there's been some sort of, you know, they have different titles, but it's the same idea. Some one person who is, you know, wields some level of power that's either hereditary or finance-based or whatever. Um, you know, in the United States, we don't have kings, but we do have um, fortunes that go from person to person. And um, a lot of the right-wing billionaires who underwrite all of the fuckery are you know second and third generation people that don't want to lose their money who did nothing to amass the money in the first place they're just you know uh won the lottery basically and now they want to make it so other people can't win the lottery um so what's your take on on kings what you know because you seem to have some appreciation i guess for them or, or or reverence and yet you don't so what's your take on monarchs real or otherwise Real or otherwise, um, I suppose as human history marched along and people amassed and amassed and people became okay with people amassing it or knew they would be destroyed if they tried to stop them, which I think is even a line somewhere in the Mapmaker's War. Um, who doesn't like power, right? I mean, seriously, who doesn't yeah. like it? Even, even, because cruel, and if you're a cruel person, you enjoy the cruelty. But even if you're not, you enjoy having power over other human beings. I mean, I think that's just how most of us are built. And if you don't have power, then you want to be attached to power. Thus, Trump and those who support him, because there's a vicarious connection of being in relationship to that, even if it's not direct. It's it's implied or felt or in some way. Um, I don't know, Nick... Nicholas was was an interesting character for me or person for me. I think because I knew he was different at his core that there was something he was meant to he was meant to part be part of an undoing. Mm. That he understood which I think is unfortunate. And maybe there are people in power as kings or queens or people who have amassed ridiculous sums of money. There may be a part of them that understands that what they're doing is out of balance with the way that things could be or should be, and they don't act on it. And I think what made Nicholas interesting to me was, even as a younger boy, interrogating what it meant to be in power. And then as a very young man becoming king in his kingdom and going through what they did, which was a yeah. plague... So my book came out in 2017 and I was writing this book well before COVID hit. And so that, I mean, and I had people telling me, oh, wow, that was pressy. And I'm like, mm -hmm, <laughs> yeah, all, all the world, it, 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 you know, yeah, great job. There are a lot of things I could have been done differently with COVID that would have put us in a different place, but, you know, didn't. But, you know, for, I'm kind of spoiling things, but for Nicholas to make the decision that he did, showed a great deal of strength of character and an awareness of the importance of giving people sovereignty 
instead of him being the sovereign to sort of break that up into to make people able to participate in the way that they build their world and obviously this is fiction and you know that that world secret and nicholas's world is more like what was like our victorian time so not as nearly as complicated as what we have now but that that decentralization that realizing that more people to the table brings more to all of us you know in the end it's for the greater good and i don't i just sort of just don't understand why things are the way they are i just i wish that i did and maybe i do maybe it is just so simple as i get to have all of the cookies <laughs> you know look at my big pile of cookies and you can't have any haha ha. i don't know maybe it is just childish at its core just i don't know i don't know did you watch the coronation uh, no i did not okay I did it was not. on very early sure. yeah i don't i don't know what i was doing i do remember watching diana and charles's wedding mm-hmm. and getting up for that even though i was not a girl who in any way ever wanted to get married even though i did um but i did not have a wedding because i never thought like why that was just not in my thing but for some reason I got up and watched Charles and Diana get married. And it, maybe it was just the spectacle yeah. or the fact that that's something I don't get to see. I don't know. I don't remember what my my child self was thinking at the time other than, hmm, let me see what this is like. Yeah. A lot of people, I remember seeing an image on the TV and being like, there's a lot of people in that room. That was my main takeaway. The coronation was interesting because just it's so obviously stupid to have one. And... Um, <laughs> It's he's so unworthy of the it's just it's 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 ridiculous. Right. And everybody kind of knows it but plays along anyway. Um, and you look at him and, and you're just sort of wondering what's going on in his head now. Doesn't he realize that this is this is like the way out? Like, you know, the, the British Empire is over. Brexit has completely fucked up that country yeah. to the point where it might never recover. He's going to be king of like, a, you know, not very much territory in a very short period of time. Maybe it's time to hang up the old thing and, you know, call it a day and abolish the monarchy entirely you know maybe i mean does that go through his mind yeah but but again it's that whole idea of tradition and this like slow thing just rolling and rolling and rolling over time and we have to keep propping this up but why and the amount of money that this family has i mean can't we do something else with all of this really no no we have to you know one more ermine gown you know or whatever (laughs) i don't have enough globus crucigers i need more damn it that's what i need um so you know we learn a lot about about writers i think obviously this is an obvious thing but we learn a lot based on what they write and and what they in in these books what you choose to make important and and you know clearly there's certain things that that are emphasized as important. Like nature is very important and animals are very important and living in the woods with the animals is very important. And ancient wisdom is important and art is important and music and, you know, all these kinds of things. So um, I know that you're a a lover of nature and you said you've, you've now moved to the woods to a house in the woods because you need to be surrounded by nature to kind of get through all this. Um, it's not hyperbole to say we've already talked about it that life on earth is threatened by stupid humans. I mean we're we're you know on a, on a collision course with this thing and people are just throwing more and more coal into the steam engine to make it go faster into oblivion. So uh this this book came out in 2017. That's the third book of the trilogy. So that's early in the Trump term. 
what are your feelings about it now? Are they the same? Have they intensified? What do you think? Feelings about what? Climate stuff. Because the it, I just feel like this last year in particular has been like, oh shit, man. That's just me. But what oh, do you I'm see? terrified. Yeah. Oh, I'm absolutely terrified. Like, and and I, 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 there aren't many people. I mean, we're having this conversation in front of who knows how many thousands upon thousands of people. But yeah, I barely contain and compartmentalize my existential terror for myself and the people I care about and the animals and the plants and the human beings who are here now and who may be coming. Because we don't know where this, we do know where this is headed. And there may be a possibility to pull this out, but then again, maybe not. I, like, there is some benefit to having lived in the same state within the same 100-mile geographical region for my entire life. And I can tell you right now that this summer has been bizarre. I have never seen 100-degree temperatures, even though people on Facebook love to go, well, in the 1920s, we had a stretch of 100-degree weather. Okay, yeah, that's true, but let's look at the trajectory over time yeah. and how much hotter it's gotten. And I, I mean, I live, I mean, in the woods, in the woods, I'm literally surrounded by trees. And we have had a three month drought. We had maybe an inch and a half in rain in the last couple of weeks. Why, I mean, part of it is fascinating to watch how the trees work together to try to conserve and protect each other. But then they're like the more delicate, gentle shrubs underneath. So I know when the American beautyberry is shriveled up to almost nothing, it, it's scary. It's scary to watch how much that little bush is suffering. He's an indicator. She's an indicator in the, in the grander scheme of what's happening. And then to watch the leaves turn colors that they don't turn colors until like September, October, November here. I'm watching it in real time. We don't have a 110 degree heat in Louisiana. It gets warm, it gets humid, but that's obscene. And this is this summer, what's coming? And meanwhile, everyone's walking around like, oh, la-di-da, let me go here, let me go there. Our politicians are doing whatever. No one seems to be taking, I mean, I, it's not fair. Some people are taking this very seriously, clearly. Yeah. But those of us who are taking it very seriously don't have the power to change anything. Yeah. And yes, some it would probably mean extreme changes, like unnecessary travel by plane. You can't go. You just can't. Rationing gas would freak people out. We know that what was it in the seventies when there was the get with the oil and gas sure. crisis? Mm -hmm. They lowered speed limits on roads to try to conserve. Can you imagine trying to go from 55 to 45, how much people would lose their minds? But that also shows the disconnect in our ability to kind of, I don't even want to go to shared sacrifice because it's not sacrifice. It's just understanding we all live in an interconnected world and we're all responsible for each other in some way. And we may have to make changes in order to make things better for everybody instead of making it good, good for just a few. Why is that so freaking hard? I'm willing to drive 45 miles an hour. Why isn't somebody else? What's so important about getting there a little bit faster? Or is our brains just, you know, go because go, 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 do, 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 and not giving us enough time to really reflect on what's going on? I mean, we've talked about, we talked about this earlier. It's just by design. The harder people work, the more they're consumed by just trying to survive and get through day to day. They don't have the bandwidth to think about the bigger questions and the implications of what's going on. Yeah. So this train just keeps headed to whatever disaster we're headed to. 
It's uh, just scary. It's terrifying. And it's hard to think about because it's, you know, you wrap your mind around it. Like even, even the things that you said, like recycling and these, obviously we have to do these things, but I, sometimes I think what's the, it, it really, if I separate my, if I don't separate the plastic from the thing, is that going to really halt the, the end of everything? I don't know. You know, it's not, it, the, the only powers forces, you know, big enough, strong enough to really do anything are the governments, not just the U S government, but you know, China and India and, you know, these governments around the world and they have to come together and do this or, uh, you know. And they're going to have to, and and it's going to be a matter of forcing the hand of the corporations who just yeah, are allowed to, you know, basically get away with murder. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they do. That's what they so, do. So uh, until that gets wrangled in and I don't know, is it possible for some of them to have an epiphany and realize yeah, we have to do things differently. I mean, I, I, I hope so, but mm, <laughs> past I, this prologue, y'all. Yeah, and 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 the most powerful corporation ever that existed is the British East India Company by far. I mean, you know, th these things are powerful. Uh, you know, Google and uh, everything are powerful, but they can't like levy taxes and raise armies and have people executed yet. But the East India Company could do all those things, and that eventually collapsed under its own weight and was destroyed. So, you know, cor the corporations, there is an end to that as well so that we can, you know, we can look at. So, um, OK, I've got a couple more questions for you because I know we're getting on time. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, you talked before about, you know, how the, the stories come to you. And I, I've always been very curious personally about your creative process because I think it's it's interesting to me. Um, just as a writer to see, you know, how do people get ideas? How do they do stuff? You say you, it's basically like it's being delivered to you and you're just, you know, throwing it out there. Um, I think about that more in terms of music sometimes, like a, a song or a melody coming, you know, like did, did Paul McCartney write yesterday or was it just beamed into him and he's just a better <laughs> vessel at it? You know, he fucking woke mm -hmm. up from a dream. He woke up in the morning with the song in his head, like, come on. Um, so did he write it or was it delivered to him? I don't know. So uh, and you you said I remember when you were done writing these these books, um, which, again, are really fantastic and and good and like well thought out and, you know, not short. They're like, you know, they're an impressive accomplishment. And uh, but when you were done being like, I'm done, I think, for a while and, and thinking, you know, like like you'd given birth and it was rough and you might you know, you weren't ready for more babies anytime soon. So how are you feeling with that now? Like, just talk about your creative process and what you might uh, do going forward. OK, so my creative process, I would call non-ordinary. <laughs> uh, and there are a lot of listeners who are going to roll their eyes at what I'm about to say, but that's just how it's going to have to be. Uh, I. I receive, I don't imagine. Most of what you anyone reads in my books did not come out of my glimmering, shimmering little mind. It came from somewhere else, and it was my responsibility as the one who received to piece it together in a way that other people can read it. Um, the experience of writing all four of my books was very interesting and peculiar. My first book, The Mercy of Thin Air, was a gentle experience, and it wasn't until it was all over when I looked back and went, oh, yeah, that was weird. That was strange, the way that those people came to me, particularly the the narrator, Rozzy. Um, Yeah, that was very odd. 
And then when I started working on the books that became the trilogy, that was uh, in sometimes beautiful and amazing and mystical and wonderful and in sometimes absolutely terrifying because it was basically as if the people of those books were using my body to embody their trauma and to tell me their stories. And it was up to me to take that in and tell their stories. So the map makers wore a third of that book. And I'm being serious. I sat down in a dark room for two weeks and wrote every word that came into my head verbatim. And when I wrote that down, I was like, what the hell is this? I set it aside for months, finally <laughs> typed it up. And when I typed it up and I put periods where these little dashes were and read it like that, I realized the voice was there and whoever was telling me her story, who was Eva, it was really there. Like that was not made up. And so that chunk got broken up sometimes to the sentence level to create the structure that then became the map makers war and things that came in the story I told earlier about the guardian communities and then me reading books on Neolithic communities and how that helped me understand what that was. All of these things fit into this strange pattern that then I created this book, you know, I delivered it, but you know, for me to say, I want to write a book about, you know, a girl who lives in the woods, who goes and that's not how I operate. All of the people in the books are who they are. I can't make them do anything I don't want them to do. They, I can't even name them. They name themselves. I mean, it's just this very strange experience. And, you know, when I talk to other writers, most of them are, are very rational about their process. And it's like, I'm going to write about this and this is how I'm going to do it. And yeah, they've had these weird experiences now and then about characters pushing back or, you know, suddenly they have this revelation. I mean, that's part of the creative process in general, but the strangeness and the depth to which I go in my work, um, I don't encounter that very often. So it feels very isolating. And it's also kind of, it's less scary to talk about because I've just sort of accepted that's how I write. That's how things come to me. And I can't remember how I encountered it. Uh, it must've been, I don't know, four or five years ago, a psychologist, a Jungian psychologist named Jerome Bernstein, who wrote about borderland, not borderline, but borderland personalities. And in his book about borderline, borderland personalities, he said that there are some people who kind of traverse this transrational way of being. And some of them are artists or writers or musicians, and some of them are people who just kind of live in the world. But we all have the same experience of for me, it's, and he gave this example of a particular uh, client he was working with who uh, felt sad about some cows that she'd seen. I think they were like, you know, random cows on, on a ranch. And he realized that the pain she was feeling was not her pain at the sadness of what those cows were going to go through. She felt the cow's pain. And it was when he realized that this person's level of empathy was beyond what most ordinary people experience. He was able to work with her. And when I read this, I understood that because I was like, oh, that's me. That's me. It's not just I feel sad about the thing. I feel the sadness of the thing, of the of the being. And so as a writer, when I'm getting whatever it is, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's past lives or, or ancestral lineage stuff or uh you know, things coming from parallel dimensions, or maybe it is my imagination. I don't experience it that way, but maybe it is. And regardless of what it is, 
My work is very deep. And my hope is that people who read it are transformed by it and move through the world in a more gentle, compassionate way with themselves and with other people. That's ultimately the, what I want from my work. And so you ask what's next. I do have a Substack newsletter that I launched strangely, which is, of course, the way I do things, called Crone Energy. And which is great. It is it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> There's one entry, and I was so happy when it came out. I, I can't even Thank tell you. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very excited So, uh, yeah, so after seven years of not writing, because the writing the trilogy literally did break me, it broke me mentally, mental, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It really did. And so the fact that I'm able to even consider writing again to me is quite a miracle, but it will be nonfiction. So maybe it'll be easier, but I see this crone energy as a departure uh, from work I've done and probably an amplification of work I've done in that I'm moving into that space of owning the rage I feel about the world we live in that we don't have to live in. Um, what I write about is probably going to be quite varied. Anything from the creative process to native plants to the lies we've been told. It could be all kinds of different things. And I'm not trying to put a box around it because I'm tired of everybody having to be branded and boxed in. And this is what you do. I'm sick of it. So for those who might be interested in going on this strange little journey with me, please join. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping to have regular posts coming in the next few months. Uh, I'm working on them. I don't know what's coming out, but you know, we'll see. And if anything, maybe people will feel less alone by reading it at, at the very least. Thank you so. for, thank you for sharing all of that. I want to get, I, I'm going to read about the, what you wrote on the website for Crone Energy now. Beauty, okay. love, compassion, rage, frustration, disappointment, hope, vision, truth, as I perceive it, and more. What I reflect on could be anything from the resilience of native plants to the need for quiet, to the mysteries of creativity. Tell us about the, oh, that's my question. So I, I think that's, uh, you know, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm very excited for it. And I, I, I'm i thinking about, and thank you for sharing that about, you know, the creative process, because that's fascinating to me. Like, I wish I could do that, like going in the room and all that. Like, I, I, I you know, hint. Because it's real scary. No, I hint around at it. I can't, I, I'm not open <laughs> enough to do it. I think you really have to be open. But I think about like how ideas come, like how do how are ideas generated? And partly I have an idea for something, which God knows where it even originates or some kind of, it's not, it's a feeling that something might be interesting to write about. And then I think I just throw up the bat signal and it's up there for a really long time. And I, I get, it's almost like transmissions from some weird place that show up from time to time. And usually it's when I'm either in the bath, in the shower, or I'm walking through a door is when I get yes. an idea. Uh -huh. It's yeah. always like, I'm you literally going through a threshold and I'm like, oh, it uh -huh. has to, oh, Anna's the narrator. Uh, you know, like it hits me in the, in these weird moments of when I'm distracted and, and doing other things or whatever. Well, like that's because your rational mind is not in control in those moments that you've, you've kind of lost those, those boundaries. And so yeah. you can do it. You're you're already doing it. It's the <laughs> degree to which you continue to do it and allow that to happen. That's that can come unbidden, which is <laughs> certainly what happened to me. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, if it's something you're interested in exploring, you can certainly do that. Um it takes it takes spaciousness and courage. It takes time too, and and solitude yes. and the, you know, like to, to for me to go away anywhere and really cut off from everything, I find that I can't almost can't do it. It's so hard to just detach. 
even detaching to the level that's necessary to be able to do that. I don't think that I could do um, for a variety of reasons, but I don't know. I mean, maybe hopefully I'll be able to write a novel again. I have, I have two that I want in my brain that oh. are coming. They're coming and very, very slowly and drips okay, and drops. Okay, so you already set it up. Like the the little, the, it's flashing there, wherever it is, off the radar, and whatever's going to attract to it and come to it is going to come. I wrote a third of a novel in 2000, 2001, that was a sci-fi thing. And I like it, but I couldn't fi ever figure out how to finish it. And like last Friday, while I was on my live show, I figured out how to finish it. I don't I know why. That. So we we're talking about AI. That's why and I, ah, part of the book okay. deals with the AI, which, and uh, and I I had a flash of of insight about oh that's maybe what I can do, you know. Again, these things the, the transmissions come at very strange times. Yes, sometimes. yeah, but but they come. So clearly, you have that ability to do that. I guess mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see. I, it, not fast enough. It's it's it, it's um it's like the Wi-Fi keeps flickering out. I really I I still have dial up. You're. You're on the Ethernet, and I still have dial-up, and I think that's the that's the difference, you know. Oh <laughs> man! Wherever the transmissions are coming from. So um, this has been great. Now, do you have where you're, you're on again? The 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 Substack is called Crone Energy, which everyone should sign up for. Um, the the books there there there's the Keeper of Keeper of Tales trilogy. Um, you have a website, which is your name, Ronlin Domang. Is it? It's dot com, right? Not dot net. Um, okay. Yes. Um, is there? Anywhere else that people can find you? I'm on Instagram and Facebook occasionally, so you can follow me there. I don't post very often because, you know, it's social media, <laughs> even though I'm supposed to, and you know, but whatever. I'll yeah. be posting more once Crone Energy is up or not. I mean, who knows where, where social media is going? Yeah. Um, so. To hell is, is the answer. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> to the fiery hellscape, which I guess is Burning Man right now. We're doing that, that joke. Oh, will yeah. be, it's already uh, over. Oh, well, no, yeah. they're rained out. So yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Who says the word hell, hell, it, it, why does it have to be fire? Why can't it just be horrible rain and mud? You know, what's the difference? Um, anyway, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on and, sh and being so open and sharing uh, all this with us. And uh, you're welcome. thank yeah. you so much for the invitation and having this, very engaging conversation and you know how much i love your work and appreciate and honor what you've been doing with prevail and and doing the the good hard stuff for the people of this country and getting the word out and well thank ugh. you that's, that's, and it's, it's and i know what you do is not easy it takes a lot of strength <laughs> thank you i but appreciate you. that i appreciate thank that you. it's yeah the whole thing is great could you I, I don't even know. We were back at Nervous Breakdown days. I never would have thought that, it would, that any of this would be like, possible. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. So that was like 2010 ish. Like, what the hell what happened? The hell? I don't know, man. I don't know. Everything went crazy. It just went nuts. But, uh, you know, like we're, we took a wrong turn somewhere, got off the highway, and now we're, I don't know where we are. It's, 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 it's pretty devastating. So anyway, uh, Ronlin Domang, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Greg. Take care. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. 
You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday Night Hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>